All right, last message in Revelation. Here we go. Revelation 22, 6 to 21. I just want you to think about this for a second. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Every second that passes brings me closer to what Tolkien called the end of all things. Every second that passes brings you closer to the end of all things. And if, in light of that, I live only in the moment, and there are people who live their life this way. This is their philosophy of life. I'm going to live in the moment. If you live only in the moment, it is to your detriment. If you live in the past, as many people do, just burdened by the past, if you live in the past or by the past, it is self-harm. If instead I live for eternity, I think of eternity, I set myself up to enjoy all that God has provided for me now and forever. And I know the objection. As soon as I say that, that we need to think about eternity, we need to think about uh, the end, I, I know the objection is this, and Sir Oliver Wendell Holmes said it. He said this, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you heard that phrase before? So heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. And C.S. Lewis reflecting on that in his book, Mere Christianity, said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Because when we set our eyes on eternity, it impacts everything as Christians. It impacts everything about how we live our lives now. So there can be no doubt for the Christian who has understood, who has sat under this teaching and understood the apocalyptic visions, there can be no doubt for us that this is true. And it's, it's not, by the way, and we've said this multiple times in the series, it is not that we become so engrossed in the details about the revelation, about the apocalyptic visions, that we lose ourselves in all of these details that we have to compare it to all the news of the day and we have to lock down every little interpretation. It's not that at all. But that we would become so heavenly minded that it alters every facet of our lives as we await for the Savior's return. And that's the thrust of this final message. This, in essence, this, these last verses are Jesus' final appeal to us to be heavenly minded with all of the implications that that has for us before he comes. And so Revelation 22, beginning at verse 6, let me read uh, this last section of the book of Revelation. This is a John reflecting on something an angel is saying to him. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. 
And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Well, here's the big question that stands overarching this entire last passage. Will I heed Jesus' final appeal to his church? And under that question, to understand that and be able to answer that, let's ask four other questions of ourselves. The first one is this, will I trust the truth of his word? Will I trust the truth of his word? Everything we're dealing with in the current culture, and as Christians, we would look at the culture around us and go, like, I'm feeling the pressure. I'm feeling the weight of being someone who believes the gospel and and what the world is deciding about things. I'm feeling that. But everything we're dealing with in the current culture and all of the challenges, whatever they may be, all the challenges we're facing as individual believers, all of it comes down to what we believe about the Word of God. Everything comes down to whether or not we believe what God has said or not. And so do we believe, as Paul said to Timothy, he writes this letter to him and he says to him, do we believe this? Do we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness? Do we believe that? Because if we do, it changes everything. Now, if we have doubts or questions about that, I'm just saying, you have to get that locked down. You have, to, you have to lock it down, at least in some measure, you have to lock down what you believe about the Word of God. Before You have to do that before any of this is going to make sense. And you don't have to lock it down perfectly. None of us has locked it down perfectly. We all still face challenges with, with doubts and, and, and just these, these, these little, um, these doubts that creep in when we're faced with pressures. There's still going to be moments when we're, when we're crying out to God, why God, why God? And we're going to know why, but we're still so deep into it that we're asking him. And it's like we don't believe the God, word of God. It's, it's, there's times when we're still going to stray. We're still going to commit sins, even though we know the truth. 
There's times when we're going to struggle with the truth of God's word. I'm not talking about locking this down perfectly, but we have to lock it down at some level. We have to lock down at some level the authority of God or else the gospel just doesn't make sense. And maybe it's as simple as this, just as simple as believing that God spoke. God spoke, and when he spoke, he gave us the way to get to him. And that could be enough to simply believe that God spoke, and in speaking to us, he told us how to get to him. And if we believe that, we can believe the gospel. Now, John knew, John knew this is so important that we're locking this in, that the Bible is authoritative, that it's God's word for us, because John knew that his visions were going to be controversial. He knew that there would be those who would challenge the authority of the visions that he had received and that he was sending out to the churches. And think about how unusual, how unusual this book is compared to everything else in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have four Gospels, which are essentially four different renderings of the life of Christ while He was on earth. Then we have the book of Acts. It's a book of the history of the early church up to a certain point. And then we have all these letters, letters written to churches, letters written to individuals about specific situations, answering questions, laying down theology. We have one sermon a transcript. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. We have letters to some individuals, and then we have this book of Revelation, so unusual, so unlike anything else we have in all of the New Testament. And so John could be excused for thinking that maybe people weren't going to receive this in the way that they ought to, with these mind-bending, apocalyptic visions that he had received. And so the angel says to him, verse 6 now, he says to him, these words, all the visions that I've given to you, all the visions that Jesus gave me to give to you, the angel says, these words are trustworthy, they're able to be trusted, and they're true. There's so much angst in the culture today about what is true. Please do not think that that is a new thing. It's something that has been struggled with for millennia. What is true? It goes back to the very history of humanity. What is true? And the angel is declaring these revelations are true. These words are trustworthy and true. And he goes on to say, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So he's saying to John, Listen, John, these, this revelation, these visions that you have received, rightly belong in the same conversation as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. You have the spirit of the prophets. This is a word from God. And by the way, all of this reiterates what, what was read. If you're taking notes, just jot down the reference, chapter 1, verse 3, because you go all the way to the beginning. This, this frames up the entire book, and it affirms that Revelation rightly takes its place among the other prophetic books. Now listen, here's why all of this is important as we get into this final message. What you decide about this book of Revelation and what you decide about the whole of the Bible will determine your eternal destiny. That's what's writing on this. If you believe the book, if you believe the book, you'll believe the God of the book. You'll believe that God wrote the book through his prophets and apostles. And so this is the setup. This is what the angel has set us up with. 
And then Jesus speaks in verse 7. And by the way, in this passage, there's a lot, of, a lot of things happening here, but sometimes an angel is speaking, and sometimes it's John speaking, and sometimes it's Jesus speaking. In verse 7, Jesus takes over, and he says, Behold, I'm coming soon. I mean, that couldn't be anybody but Jesus. Behold, I'm coming soon. And by the way, that's soon by God's reckoning of soon. It's clearly not soon by our reckoning of soon. Am I right about that? It's been 2,000 years. Does that seem soon to you? That doesn't seem soon to me. I'm, I mean, I'm the kind of guy that if I text you and, I don't, and you don't reply, if you don't reply in 15 minutes, I assume you're dead. <clears throat> I mean, it's texting. If I didn't want you to reply, I would have emailed you. <laughs> so that's me. That's just my view of soon. Um, maybe maybe you, you feel the same way, but this is God's reckoning. He says, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. I mean, this is consistent with what he said in Matthew 24. Everybody's wondering, when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? Everybody's wondering. I mean, some of you are coming to the end of this series in Revelation. You're wondering, Todd didn't tell us anything in this. He didn't give us any details about anything. Correct. Because this is what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 26. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. I mean, if Jesus said it, in fact, he says, and he's in his incarnate form, his human form at this moment, he says, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, so soon, soon by God's reckoning, this is going to happen. Will I trust the truth of his word? Then he pronounces this beatitude, and in the book of Revelation, just curiously, there's seven little beatitudes, seven blessed are statements. So the sixth of seven appears here in the latter part of verse seven. He says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, you're going to enjoy God's great fulfilling. This is what it means to be blessed. You're going to enjoy God's great fulfilling provision for you if you believe this book, if you trust his word. And if you don't trust his word, you won't experience his amazing, abundant provision for you. You won't enjoy his blessing. So Jesus lays this all down. An angel spoke, Jesus spoke, now John speaks. And he says this in verse eight. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Again, the people he's writing to, remember, it's the, it's the seven churches. Chapters two and three, we had these letters. The, 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 the first, those two chapters, two and three, Seven little letters there to seven different churches. That's like stuck onto the, onto the full body of this book of Revelation for each of these churches. So they all know John. John knows all of them. So he says to them, I, John, 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 who you know. I've been to all your churches. John, who you know, apostle. I'm the one who heard and saw these things. He's trying to bring some credibility to it. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to where, and this shows just how easily you can mess things up when it comes to obeying the word of God. Because he says, as soon as I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now, he might just be repeating an incident that happened back in chapter 19 that we talked about where he did the exact same thing. Maybe he's just rehearsing that incident again. Or maybe, or maybe he's an idiot and he's getting this wrong a second time. Like you and me, we keep going back to the same kinds of sins. Maybe he's just sharing this to reinforce the necessity of obeying the word of God and how challenging that can actually be. 
He's hearing from Jesus. He's hearing from angelic messengers. He's seen these amazing visions. He knows without a doubt who Jesus is and how it's all going to play out. And still he messes it up. It's kind of encouraging to hear this, knowing how often I mess it up. How challenging it can be to live under the authority of God's word. But of course, now the angel has to respond to this, verse 9. The angel deflects the worship, of course. You must not do that, exclamation point. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. Again, affirms this is where revelation belongs in the same conversation as the prophets. And then he restates the point, notice it here, and with those who keep the words of this book. It's all about submitting to the authority of God's word and, and, and what that drives us toward because then it's, it's not the worship of this book. It's not the worship of the six. It's, it's what this book points us to. Because the angel then says, notice, laser-focused imperative, worship God. Obedience to his word, acknowledgement of the authority of God's word points us to the worship of God himself. This is an encouragement to keep our eyes on Jesus. This is an encouragement to listen to his word. And this is an encouragement to not be distracted by anything else. The world is terribly distracting. And we might immediately think that's what this is about. It's just about keeping us out of the world. And that's part of it for sure. But if you're a discerning Christian and you know the word of God and you're submitting to it, listen, the world is fairly easy to diagnose. Like you can look at the world and just go, okay, I know that's not Christian. I know that's not in the Bible. I know I shouldn't be doing that. But that's easy. Things that happen outside in the world, that's easy to diagnose. But I feel like John has a greater concern here. He has a, a, a concern about so-called Christians who are messing this up. He has a concern that, that this book is going to go to those seven churches and they're not going to take it seriously. That somehow they're going to foul this up. And that concern is so legit because... Listen, by that time, by the time the book of Revelation has been given to John and he's sending it out, there's already been apostasy rising up in the church. That didn't take long at all. There's all kinds of false teaching out there in the world today. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to listen to his word. We need to not be distracted by anything else that could subvert that message inside of the church. Run away, I'm telling you, run away. Run far away from any church and any pastor that minimizes or distorts the word of God. And there are many out there doing it today. Run away, run fast. Listen, not every church is Christ's. Not every pastor is actually ordained by the Spirit. And not every Christian is saved. And I put all of that in quotes for a reason. Trust the truth of his word. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Amen? Amen. All right. Second question. Ready? Second question? Will I preach to those who have not yet believed? 
Well, I preach to those who have not yet believed, having trusted, if we, if we get past the first point and we trust in the truth of his word, will I preach, will I proclaim, will I witness to the word of God to others? Will I support the preaching of God's word? Will I support the proclamation of the gospel to those who have not yet heard it? It was important to tell John, evidently in verse 10, to not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. It's soon. The word revelation itself, the word apocalypse, means unveiling or revealing of a truth. And in contrast to some other prophecies that we've heard in the scriptures, some prophecies were actually kept for a certain season. They were kept mysterious or kept locked away. But these were to be openly preached and revealed because the time was short. People needed to know. The context into which this word comes is that, verse 11, the evildoer and the filthy are doing their thing in the world. And the appeal comes to Christians the righteous to still do right, and, and in that context, for the holy to still remain holy. It's a rather descriptive way for John to make an important contrast. John wants to make sure there's absolutely no muddiness in our thinking when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. That we understand how dire the situation is, that there are people who are lost and in the world, that there are people who are saved, and that these have a mandate to tell these others. It's a contrast we need to hear. There are people who are in, and there are people who are not. We live in a culture and a society that is pounding into us this idea of tolerance and live and let live and everybody has their own truth and we shouldn't upset that and we flatly have to reject it. Some are in and some are out. And that is our mission, to understand this. We, we can't be muddy about that. There's no murky middle. You're saved by Jesus or you're not. You're a citizen of New Jerusalem or you're outside of the city under condemnation forever and ever. And Jesus says in verse 12, he says, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense, my judgment with me. I'm gonna repay each one for what he has done. We have to be ready. In fact, that's the central message. If we were to boil it down in Revelation, the central message and the final appeal of the apocalyptic literature for both believer and unbeliever is the same two words. It's be ready. To the believer, be ready by living a holy life and being engaged in the mission. To the unbeliever, be ready by turning your life over to Jesus Christ and confessing that you need this Savior. These prophecies for us who are hearing this, who believe in Jesus Christ, these should be a motivation, no matter what circumstances are going on in our life, these should be a motivation for us to godly living and gospel mission. The imminent return of Jesus Christ compels us to that. We have an obligation of Chris, as Christians to tell the world that is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, 
the mandate came to us to make disciples. Are you making disciples? Acts 1.8, be my witnesses. Are you witnessing to Jesus Christ, to the people that are in your life? This mandate, too, is, is grounded in God's authority and Christ's authority. In fact, before he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, verse 18, which often does not get quoted with us, with it, he said, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he says, go therefore and make disciples. The authority is in him. We ought to listen to him. And then he says this, the third This is the third instance in Revelation of this divine declaration that Jesus makes. Verse 13, he says, I am, and literally he says, because there's an emphasis here in the grammar, he says, I myself am. I myself am. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. His authority and the authority of the prophecies that he's given to John rest in the fact that he transcends space and time. He transcends them. In fact, he created space and time. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He, he is the originator and the culminator. I mean, culminator is not even a word. I looked it up, but I had to use it. He's the originator and the culminator of all things. Sovereign over the entire universe which he made. He is Yahweh. He is God. And he gave us a mission to spread the gospel, saying this, and this is the seventh of the seven Beatitudes in Revelation, verse 14. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who get saved by Jesus. Same imagery as chapter 7, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, which we were barred from in the garden after the fall, but now we get access to. They have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates because we belong there. And this is all covered in the visions that we saw prior to this in the first part of chapter 22 and chapter 21. The emphasis here, when you you look at the way this is worded, blessed are those who wash their robes, who wash their own robes. And it it seems to tip a little bit in, in the direction of the sinner's initiative toward God as if it's something that we actually do to affect this, as if we wash our robes. But there's no minimizing of the truth that apart from what Christ has done, no washing is even possible. We can't wash our own robes. The ability to wash our robes is because the blood of Jesus Christ has been spilled. There's no minimizing of this truth. His death on the cross and his resurrection to new life are the only means by which we may be saved. He did the work. He defeated sin. He defeated death and the grave. The message throughout Revelation has been about the Lamb and his sacrifice for us. And that doesn't change here. I hope it's been clear throughout this book, throughout the series that we have preached, that this is entirely the work of Christ, and we come with nothing. 
John has certainly made it clear time and time again in the visions that he received. And if there's been any ambiguity at all throughout this series, the fault is mine alone as the preacher. So to make sure that it's not missed, here in the epilogue to the book, the epilogue to the book, he makes the point one final time. Some are in and some are out. To deny this is to distort the gospel. And the difference between those who are in and those who are out is, listen, listen, it's simple faith in the work of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. All I need to do is admit my need to confess that I need a Savior. He saves me by His blood, and to refuse that is to invite scorn and judgment on my life. To make the point again, he says, this is where you're at. Like, if you don't accept this, if you don't have your robes washed and you don't have access to the tree of life, if you're not walking in through the gate, then you're outside. And outside, verse 15, he says, outside are the dogs. That's a tough illustration because I know y'all love your dogs. <laughs> right? How many dog people here? I don't even want to ask. How many dog people? Just admit it. So many dog people. I know you love your dogs, but listen, it wasn't that way in Israel in the first century. In Israel, dogs were filthy, semi-wild animals. They were not kept as beloved pets, but they were disgusting scavengers. And so it, it attaches nicely as an overarching category for everything else here. Sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And that's meant to make the contrast from those who are seeking to live righteously in holy lives. But this is all those who have not yet had their robes cleansed by Christ. And we were all part of that at one time. I mean, this is one list of several lists in the Scriptures, lists of sinful, the sinful characteristics of those who have not yet repented. In one such list, Paul says, and such were some of you. And when we look at the list, we can all find something that once gripped our hearts before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. This was us. We were outside until we weren't. Until in Christ we were cleansed. And we have the privilege of inviting others to be cleansed too. And the only way this happens is with the preaching of the gospel. Don't get hung up on the word preaching. Yes, it's what I'm doing right now, but I'm the only one who should be doing it. It's any proclamation, any sharing, any witnessing of the gospel. And y'all are preachers. If you have Jesus Christ in your life, you're all preachers wherever you happen to be. Preach, proclaim, share, witness of Christ in the circle that God has placed you, with those all around you. Romans 10, 14, and 15, Paul talks about the necessity of preaching the gospel. How can they hear, he says, unless they preach? We must proclaim this gospel. Question three. Will I hear his heart, Jesus' heart? Will I hear his heart for all to come? 
We've just heard the mandate to preach the gospel. To be mandated to preach, to make disciples, that's one thing. But so much better to understand something of the heart of Christ in this and to enter into his own passion for reaching the lost. So much better that it would be our heart too and we would want to do this and not just feel compelled to do it. Jesus speaks again something so personal. It reveals his heart in all of this. He says in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Like, I care so much about this. I'm sending my angel with a word that you're going to distribute so that they would know. Beyond that, he says, I'm the root and the descendant. It's like saying I'm the root or the origin of the thing and also the fruit that's coming off of it. Again, that's just Jesus saying, I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the root and descendant of David. The fulfillment. I'm the bright morning star. I'm the fulfillment of the prophecies. I mean, some people refer to Jesus as being a promise keeper. You ever heard of that before? Jesus is the great promise keeper. Listen, listen, we think of Jesus as a promise keeper when in fact he is the promise. A promise fulfilled through the Davidic line. The messianic plan to rescue humanity from sin and death is rooted. It's rooted in his heart. It's rooted in love. You know the verse. Unbelievers know the verse. Baseball fans know the verse. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so John, speaking to his readers, picks up on this love-inspired mission. And he says in verse 17, the Spirit, that's the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead speaking, the Spirit and the bride, this is the people of God now, you and me if we're believers, all those who have greatly benefited from this gospel, the Spirit and the bride say to unbelievers, to those who are still outside who may be reading this prophecy, come, come, and let the one who hears that and who comes say, to more unbelievers, come. The invitation repeated generationally. And let the one who is thirsty, the unbelievers who cannot find, remember that river of life is flowing out from the throne of God right through the middle of the city. Let the one who is thirsty, let the unbeliever who cannot find the quenching of their thirst in anything the world offers, I mean, if you're, if you're watching on the live stream or you're here in the room and, and you're chasing after things that the world is offering and you think that that's somehow going to be satisfying to you, I'm here to tell you right now it won't be. The offer here is to come, come thirsty. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's not that it didn't cost anything cost Jesus his life. It just doesn't cost us anything. We, we, we don't have to bring anything to the table. We don't have to work at all for this. There's, there's no religious ritual we could do or moral living or giving that we could, or more, morally upstanding life that we could live. 
that could ever earn this. We can't pay the price ourselves, but someone did pay it. Jesus Christ paid it, so we don't have to. We can drink deeply from the river of the water of life. This is the offer that Jesus is making to all when he says, come. Everyone who's broken, everyone who's currently caught in a trap of some kind, every desperate person, everyone who would consider themselves to be failing at life, anyone who's struggling to know who they are or why they're here, the directionless, the searching, the sad, all who have suffered loss, all who are out of answers, all who are confused, who are gripped by addiction, who are hopeless, lonely, and thinking of giving up and ending it all, to you, he says, come. Drink of the water of life without price. Timothy Keller said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. People in our lives need this. People that we work with, people in our families, our neighbors, friends and co-workers need this. John knew the implications. He knew because he had heard the great commission from Jesus himself that this gospel must be preached to all nations. Everyone everywhere needed to hear. But there was a danger he sensed that this message to come and to drink would be lost. So the warning comes. John was about to complete the book and to send it to these seven churches. His first concern may well have been that the copyists would get it right. John would write the original manuscript, everything that he had seen. Then copyists would be brought in in the first century. They would be brought in with their own parchments and they would copy what John had recorded. Seven times, assuming John kept his original, seven copies would need to be made to go out to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Maybe his first concern here with these warnings was that they wouldn't leave anything out of the manuscripts. That's too crazy, John. We should leave that out. Or they wouldn't put anything else in to explain something that seemed like maybe people weren't going to understand it. Maybe that was his first concern. They had to get it right, every word. But his additional concern, no doubt, and one that continues to this day, would be that the readers would not take it seriously or that they would twist and distort the message that was written. So he wrote two warnings. Verse 18, warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
I mean, you might wonder throughout this series why there were certain times where I paused on an interpretation. I said, we don't ex- actually know what this is, and I refuse to speculate on it. I refuse to lock down details that are not precisely stated in the text, and that's because I don't want to add anything to the Word of God. If it's mysterious, if it's difficult to interpret, there's a reason for that. I fear for those pastors who are trying to precisely tell you what every detail is. Are they not adding to the Word of God? God have mercy on them. The second warning, verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, taking stuff out. I love that in the 33 weeks that we have been in this book, we have read every single word of the prophecy on these Sundays. We have read it all. We have allowed the Word of God to be heard for what it is. We've not taken anything away from it. We've not shied away from any difficult thing that needed to be said. Because if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away His share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Prophets who take away prophets and preachers, pastors and priests who demonstrate by their distortion of the gospel that they were never truly His, never saved, lost, and taking people with them into the abyss. Jesus' heart is for people to come, and that means proclaiming a clear gospel and not encumbering it and not leaving any part of it out. Last question. Will I be encouraged as I eagerly await the day? Verse 20, he who testifies, it's a court term, judicial term, a witness confirming the truth of or supporting the validity of a fact, of an event. He who testifies to these things says, and this is obviously Jesus, surely I am coming soon, which John then affirms with his amen, so be it. Yes, Jesus, come. In fact, he adds this short but very powerful prayer. He says, come Lord Jesus. That's his prayer. I think about the the top three, the top three short prayers that we pray. Number one, short prayer that we pray, help. You ever prayed that prayer? Help, just one word, the Lord knows. Next one is forgive me. I use that one a lot. Forgive me, top three short prayers. And here's the third one, come Lord Jesus. How often do you pray that? I feel like help and forgive me are like the top two by far, but the third one we don't think of quite as often, and I think we should. Come, Lord Jesus. The heavenly-minded Christians should pray it often, if not audibly, then certainly in their hearts. If you're living the Christian life as you ought to be, the gospel is at the center, and the world is constantly at odds with your life and with your faith and values. And because of that, because we have this distance between us and the world, because we have this dissonance that we feel, 
We should always be praying, constantly be praying in the face of that, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Grant Castleberry, a pastor in the U.S., said this, there should be a great antithesis between the Christian and the world. Ethics, worldview, affections, culture, motivations, everything is different for the Christian. And if that's not true for you, if you don't look different than the world, if you feel no pressure, if you feel no disconnect, then perhaps you're not as saved as you think you are. The normal Christian life is one of dissonance with the surrounding culture and where the believer prays often under their breath, come Lord Jesus. And revelation has been given to us so that you and I would be encouraged in our resolve to live for Jesus no matter what that we would endure the hardships and the trials and the persecution that may come our way as we walk with Christ, confident in His perfect plan for us, confident in His plan for this world. John caps it off, verse 21, closes off the book with this salutation common to letters, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It's a grace that we need, the undeserved and unearned favor of God in each of our lives. We called this series Great and Amazing. It's a lift right out of the book. And the things that we have seen and heard from this book truly are great and amazing. It should be radically altering our lives, the lives of those we know. So we close with this declaration, this exaltation of Christ from Revelation 15, 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we are uh, very much in awe of who you are, and we uh, pray that prayer with John. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for the day that we'll see you face to face, where sin and death will be forever in the rearview mirror. My God, until that day, help us to remain faithful to you in our godly living and placing us on, ourselves under the authority of your word and in the mandate and mission that you've entrusted to us in this world. God, I pray for those who, as of yet, have not given their life to Christ, that, that God, today would be their day to cross from one side to the other, to move from outside the city to walking through the gates, garments washed in the blood of Christ, drinking deeply from the river of the water of life. Father, draw them to Christ wherever they're at. Help them to find hope in Him and to believe His gospel. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.